Chapter 2, Parts 8 and 9 of God the Invisible King. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by T. Michael Burke. God the Invisible King by H. G. Wells. Chapter 2 Heresies or Things That God Is Not. Part 8 The Children's God. Children do not naturally love God. They have no great capacity for an idea so subtle and mature as the idea of God. While they are still children, in a home and cared for, life is too kind and easy for them to feel any great need of God. All things are still something godlike. The true God, our modern minds insist upon believing, can have no appetite for unnatural praise and adoration. He does not clamor for the attention of children. He is not like one of those senile uncles who dream of glory in the nursery, who love to hear it said, the children adore him. If children are loved and trained to truth, justice, and mutual forbearance, they will be ready for the true God as their needs bring them within his scope. They should be left to their innocence, and to their trust in the innocence of the world as long as they can be. They should be told only of God as a great friend, whom some day they will need more and understand and know better. That is as much as most children need. The phrases of religion put too early in their mouths may become a cant, something worse than blasphemy. Yet children are sometimes very near to God. Creative passion stirs in their play. At times they display a divine simplicity but it does not follow that therefore they should be afflicted with theological formulae or inducted into ceremonies and rites that they may dislike or misinterpret. If by any accident, by the death of a friend or a distressing story, the thought of death afflicts a child, then he may begin to hear of God, who takes those that serve him out of their slain bodies and into his shining immortality. Or if by some menial treachery, through some prowling priest, the whisper of old bogey reaches our children, then we may set their minds at ease by the assurance of his limitless charity. With adolescence comes the desire for God and to know more of God, and that is the most suitable time for religious talk and teaching. Part 9. God is not sexual. In the last two or three hundred years, there has been a very considerable distanglement of the idea of God from the complex of sexual thought and feeling. But in the early days of religion, the two things were inseparably bound together. The fury of the Hebrew prophets, for example, is continually proclaiming the extraordinary wrath of their God at this or that little dirtiness or irregularity or breach of the sexual taboos. The ceremony of circumcision is clearly indicative of the original nature of the Semitic deity who developed into the Trinitarian God. So far as Christianity dropped this rite, so far Christianity disavowed the old associations. But to this day, the representative Christian churches still make marriage into a mystical sacrament, and, with some exceptions, the Roman communion exacts the sacrifice of celibacy from its priesthood regardless of the mischievousness and maliciousness that so often ensue. Nearly every Christian church inflicts as much discredit and injustice as it can contrive upon the illegitimate child. They do not treat illegitimate children as unfortunate children, 
but his children with a mystical and an incurable taint of sin. Kindly, easygoing Christians may resent this statement because it does not tally with their own attitudes, but let them consult their orthodox authorities. One must distinguish clearly here between what is held to be sacred or sinful in itself and what is held to be one's duty or a nation's duty because it is in itself the wisest, cleanest, clearest, best thing to do. By the latter tests and reasonable arguments, most or all of our institutions regulating the relations of the sexes may be justifiable. But my case is not whether they can be justified by these tests, but that it is not by these tests that they are judged even today, by the professors of the chief religions of the world. It is the temper and not the conclusions of the religious bodies that I would criticize. These sexual questions are guarded by a holy irascibility, and the most violent efforts are made, with a sense of complete righteousness, to prohibit their discussion. That fury about sexual things is only to be explained on the hypothesis that the Christian God remains a sex God in the minds of great numbers of his exponents. His disentanglement from that plexus is incomplete. Sexual things are still, to the orthodox Christian, sacred things. Now the God, whom those of the new faith are finding, is only immediately concerned with the relations of men and women. He is no more sexual, essentially, than he is essentially dietetic or hygienic. The God of Leviticus was all these things. He is represented as prescribing the most petty and intimate of observances many of which are now habitually disregarded by the Christians who profess him. It is part of the evolution of the idea of God that we have now so largely distangled our conception of him from the dietary and regimen and meticulous sexual rules that were once inseparably bound up with his majesty. Christ himself was one of the chief forces in this distanglement. There is the clearest evidence in several instances of his disregard of the rule and his insistence that his disciples should seek for the spirit underlying and often masked by the rule. His church, being made of baser matter, has followed him as reluctantly as possible and no further than it was obliged. But it has followed him far enough to admit his principle that in all these matters there is no need for superstitious fear, that the interpretation of the divine purpose is left to the unembarrassed intelligence of men. The church has followed him far enough to make the harsh threatenings of priests and ecclesiastics against what they are pleased to consider impurity or sexual impiety a profound inconsistency. One seems to hear their distant protests when one reads of Christ and the Magdalene, or of Christ eating with publicans and sinners. The clergy of our own days play the part of the New Testament Pharisees with the utmost exactness and complete unconsciousness. One cannot imagine a modern ecclesiastic conversing with a Magdalene in terms of ordinary civility, unless she was in a very high social position indeed or blending with disreputable characters without a dramatic sense of condescension and much explanatory by-play. Those who profess modern religion do but follow in these matters a course entirely compatible with what has survived of the authentic teachings of Christ, when they declare that God is not sexual, and that religious passion and insult and persecution upon the score of sexual things are a barbaric inheritance. 
but lest anyone should fling off here with some hasty assumption that those who profess the religion of the true God are sexually anarchistic, let stress be laid at once upon the opening sentence of the preceding paragraph, and let me a little anticipate a section which follows. We would free men and women from exact and superstitious rules and observances, not to make them less the instruments of God, but more wholly His. The claim of modern religion is that one should give oneself unreservedly to God, that there is no other salvation. The believer owes all his being and every moment of his life to God, to keep mind and body as clean, fine, wholesome, active, and completely at God's service as he can. There is no scope for indulgence or dissipation in such a consecrated life. It is a matter between the individual and his conscience, or his doctor, or his social understanding, what exactly he may do or not do, what he may eat or drink or so forth upon any occasion. Nothing can exonerate him from doing his utmost to determine and perform the right act. Nothing can excuse his failure to do so. But what is here being insisted upon is that none of these things has immediately to do with God or religious emotion, except only the general will to do right in God's service. The detailed interpretation of that right is for the dispassionate consideration of the human intelligence. All this is set down here as distinctly as possible. Because of the emotional reservoirs of sex, Sexual dogmas are amongst the most obstinately recurrent of all heresies, and sexual excitement is always tending to leak back into religious feeling. Amongst the sex-tormented priesthood of the Roman communion in particular, ignorant of the extreme practices of the Essenes or of the Orphic cult and such like predecessors of Christianity, there seems to be an extraordinary belief that chastity was not invented until Christianity came and that the religious life is largely the propitiation of God by feats of sexual abstinence. But a superstitious abstinence that scars and embitters the mind, distorts the imagination, makes the body gross, and keeps it unclean, is just as offensive to God as any positive depravity. End of chapter 2, parts 8 and 9 Recording by T. Michael Burke SpokenWordCreation.com